Today is going to be a day to connect some dots. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our kids for Children's Church. They want to go ahead and meet their teachers out in the foyer. If you have a Bible, we're going to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, there is a Bible available for you in the the pew right there in front of you. John, chapter 1. We are, again, in the season of Advent, and Advent is nothing more than a time where we celebrate and remember the coming of Christ the first time, and we begin to anticipate his second coming. Um, You know, when the the scripture tells us to anticipate the coming of the Lord, it tells us to prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. Okay, so this isn't just about reminding ourselves so we feel good and remember, well, you know, just hang on till Jesus comes. Uh, There is some preparation that needs to be done because he's coming. He's coming for a bride who is without spot or wrinkle. We're preparing ourselves. There's not a bride on this planet that doesn't do anything to prepare for her wedding day. That the wedding day just comes and she's like, oh, yeah, let's just, I mean, I know people elope and it all happens, but a bride who has set a date prepares herself. And we need to be preparing ourselves, being alert, being sober, being vigilant, preparing ourselves for the return of our bridegroom. And that is what Advent is supposed to do, remind us of those things and help us to prepare ourselves for his return, reminding us that his first coming got missed by the people who were waiting for him. And his second coming, it's prophesied, will be missed by many of those who are waiting for him. And so that's the prophecy. And today, as we conclude this series in Advent, uh, I've entitled this The Season of Promise. The Season of Promise. And um, the season of waiting, the season of mystery, the season of redemption. And now I'm going to try to tie them all together into this season of promise. So John chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 through 18 are what we're going to read together. <clears throat> I want to encourage you, as you, if you've got your Bible there, uh, leave it open. We're going to come back to it and uh, look at some of the, the, the parts of this passage, but I want to read it to you at first in its entirety, starting in verse number 1. It says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 6, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of John's testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he came into the world, the very world he created. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But, aren't you glad there are buts in Scripture? To all who believed him and accepted him, 
He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. I guess there's no doubt who the word is now, huh? He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only capital son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am for he existed long before me. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is God himself, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. This is the gospel. These verses, if you ever want to memorize, Pastor John told me this week that someone once told him, if you want to memorize these verses, you will be able to have the, you've got the gospel in a nutshell. This is probably the most uh, theologically full passage in the entire scripture because it reveals God's plan of salvation almost in its entirety. And so we could stay here till 5.30 and just go right into the Christmas party talking about this chapter, but we won't. I'm just going to pull out some of it because this is God's plan from beginning to end. And here's what Isaiah reminds us about God's plan. I make known the, the beginning, or excuse me, the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Meaning that God lives in a place called eternity. Meaning, when God created the earth and the sun and the moon, that's when time started. God does not live in time. He lives outside of time. He lives in eternity. We've, I've showed you that scripture in this Advent series. He lives outside of time. So he sees the end from the beginning. He sees what hasn't taken place yet before he even founded the earth. That's God. God is not some little statue that you mold and shape and create and then sit on your mantle place to bow down to. In fact, Isaiah later says, how foolish to think you take a log, cut it in half, burn half of it for heat, and then carve yourself a God from the other half. That's so foolish. But yet there are so many that are so deceived and worship a God of their own creation. And not all of them have statues. Some of them sit in our churches and they, we create a God that we're comfortable with but is not the God that is revealed to us in the Bible. And that's a dangerous place. God revealed his plan all the way back in Genesis chapter one. This is an interesting verse, Genesis 1.26, because it says, then God said, let us. Now, in English, maybe that doesn't mean a lot to you, but in the Hebrew, it's very, uh, the way the word is worded, just like English, uh, it shows you this is a singular word, the word God. It does not say, then gods. That's how we would pluralize it in English. But if it was plural in Hebrew, we would have put that. We would have said, the, then gods said, but it doesn't. It says God, the word Elohim. 
in the Hebrew. It is God, singular, one entity. But goes on to say, let us make human beings. That word is plural. It's a mystery. Make them in our image. That's a mystery. To be like us. That's a mystery. Here's a singular God who says, let us, let us in our, what's going on there? Do we have one God or do we have more than one God? You and I, maybe that have been in church a long time, know that we've got one God who exists in three persons and we call it the Trinity and uh, we try to make it like an egg or we try to make it like water and at the end of the day, you just, your mind can't fathom it. We have one God, one being existing in three separate persons. In Deuteronomy chapter six, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus, the word that we read about in John chapter one, comes to earth, he makes it very clear in several places, but one of them here, the Father and I are one. I don't understand it, you don't understand it, but we accept it by faith because God's word declares it. They are not three different gods. They are one God existing in three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's go back to God's plan. Genesis chapter one, let's go a couple verses more. Verse 28, it says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, these human beings they created in our image. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Govern it. Your version might say, if you're using a different version than the New Living Translation, subdue it. Have authority over it. Exercise dominion. That all of those words are what God is saying in that word. Govern the earth. He is saying in this moment, Adam, Eve, human beings, I have given you complete authority, dominion over the earth. It's yours. Govern it. Rule it. Subdue it. Name the animals. Whatever you name them, that's what they're called. Subdue the animals. Take care of the garden. Take care of the plants. Work it. Psalm 115 tells us, the heavens belong to the Lord, but he has given the earth to all humanity. Why is this important? Because when Adam disobeyed God, God didn't take back the earth. Adam, you disobeyed me. I don't like you. I'm taking my gift back. He couldn't. He couldn't. God had so completely given dominion to human beings, he couldn't take it back. That would have made him no longer God, perfect, true, righteous, fair, just. Now, luckily, we have a God who knows the end from the beginning. So he didn't go up, stand in heaven and talk to himself Jesus, Holy Spirit, God, all right there, Father, um, and say, what, what do we do now? He already knew what he was going to do, and he revealed it to us. But just so you know that Adam's disobedience gave complete dominion to the enemy here on the earth, he lost it completely. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 says the devil takes Jesus to a very high peak, a very high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he says to him, I will give it all to you. Satan says to Jesus, the Son of God, the word we just read about, I'm going to give it all to you. 
if you just bow down and worship me. Now, if it wasn't his to give, the next verse would have said, who do you think you are? That is not yours to give. It doesn't say that. It says, get behind me or get away from me because you worship and serve God alone. So apparently, Satan did have dominion on the earth. Apparently, he did win that in the battle of wits, if you will, with Adam and Eve. Paul further describes it in Romans chapter 5. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. Death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is the very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. And I I could go on. This chapter is amazing. And as it goes into chapter six, it explains it even further. But God said this. Paul writes about it here, but God said it back in Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam, Eve has been deceived. She's eaten the fruit. Adam has willfully disobeyed, and God pronounces judgment on them. He starts with the serpent. This is what he says in verse 14. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is about more than a snake. This is about Satan and the snake. Yes, God did curse serpents, snakes, to crawl on their belly from that day forward. We believe that they would have had legs, they would have walked around, they would have been beautiful creatures, they were cursed because the enemy used them to accomplish his purpose. But this is also a prophecy to Satan about what is going to take place. And it starts by talking about the offspring of the woman. I've said this during the Advent season, I'll remind you of it again. The seed of the woman is only in scripture one time. This is the only place that scripture talks about the seed of the woman. It's always the seed of the man. Every genealogy says this man begot this man, this man begot this man. He was the father of, father of, father of, father of. Even Matthew, who breaks from that tradition and brings up a couple women, which we should really pay attention to, Rahab, Ruth, and uh, Bathsheba, who he doesn't even name, Uriah's wife, he mentions the father first. And he does not use this same word. He just mentions the mother. Why is that significant? Well, that's significant because Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, hundreds of years later, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive a child. It will not be the seed of man. It will be the seed of woman. It will be her offspring that crushes your head. You will strike his heel. 
You're going to deal him a blow. It's going to be painful. But he will crush your head. (laughs) And that should be pretty exciting. So when we read in John 1, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word is Jesus, the Son. He already existed. He was with God. He was God. Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just later deified. He was God with him in the beginning. One God. And through him, everything was made. Colossians chapter 1 reiterates it. Don't just take my word for it. Let's let two or three witnesses make it. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. There are thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. And those must be dealt with before anything can be dealt with on earth. And Jesus crushed all of them from the top down. Look what it says. He existed before everything else and he holds all creation together. In Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. Meaning everything we have comes through the son. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. It's amazing to me that a book, a collection of books that is over 1,600 years from beginning to end, that's how long, from Genesis to Revelation, 1,600 years, written by 40 different authors who lived in various places throughout the known world, would be able to write such a complete book and prophesy these things and see them come to pass before there was internet, before there was email, before there were cell phones. How is that possible? Because the grand designer designed it from the beginning, and he is revealing it as we go. As we talked about in the season of mystery, the rulers of this earth did not understand it. Had they understood it, they would have never died the Lord of glory. Had he understood what God said to him in Genesis chapter 3, he wouldn't have tried to strike his heel. But see, that's the thing with Satan. He's blinded by his own pride. He really thinks he can overtake God. And so he strikes at Jesus' heel, and in that one death blow, He crushes his head completely. He publicly humiliated every power of earth when he said, it is accomplished. In John chapter one, we're told the word became human. He made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we've seen the glory of God. This idea that Jesus is the Son of Man is very important. See, Jesus is obviously the Son of God. 
John chapter 1 says it, Colossians says it, Hebrews says it. But Jesus refers to himself more often in the scripture as the Son of Man. Maybe because if he had referred to himself as the Son of God often, he might have gotten killed earlier. That would have been blasphemy. But he chose to emphasize his humanity. Because it's important that Jesus is God and that he came to earth, but it's more important that he was human completely. Why? Because God gave dominion to man. Who is the only one that can get it back? Man. But it had to be a sinless man. It had to be son of God, son of man. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He was God, but he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. See, coming as a baby was a huge step. And he set aside his rights and privileges as God to do that. And I can't imagine what it's like to be the creator, to become the creation. But even here, he had to choose to keep his deity set aside. And so many people think Jesus did all of these miracles because he was the son of God, and it's not true. Jesus did the miracles empowered by the Holy Spirit who the Father gave him at his baptism. And Jesus walked on earth, fully human, but yet facing the temptation of at any moment reaching in and pulling his divine privileges to himself. Had he done that, all bets were off. He had to be the son of man as he was on the earth. He was the son of God. He always would be. He can never not be the son of God because he existed before the world began. So coming as a baby doesn't change that. He's the son of God. All of his power available to him at any moment. Pulling himself off the cross would have been just a, a, a simple thing. He had to humble himself even further and continuously reject those rights and privileges and become obedient to God to die on a cross so that as God and man, he could be our sacrifice to get dominion back. The season of promise. This is the season of promise. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the words if it, when someone's talking about someone and they say, you know, so-and-so, he has so much promise. Ever heard that? He's got so much promise, so much potential, so much possibility. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Meaning, Every promise from Genesis to Revelation, because of what he's done, yes, accomplished, done, can be delivered because God is faithful and he always is faithful to his promise. He made a way to be faithful to his promise. It's yes, it's done. But look what it says. So through him, through Jesus, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us a seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the yes, God's side of the promise is fulfilled, but can I tell you, their potential. Promise salvation to all mankind. Accepting and believing is speaking 
the amen to the promise. So the promise only has potential until we say amen. Now, please do not get confused because amen does not just mean that we speak certain words. If you just say this sinner's prayer, then you, are, you receive the gift of salvation. That's not how it works. There's nothing in the scripture that says say the sinner's prayer. What it says in the scripture is repent. Turn from your way, your life, your sin, and turn to Christ. Be obedient and submitted to Christ. We have taught people that if you raise your hand when the pastor's done speaking and say this prayer, prayer then you're just going to go to heaven. That's a false teaching. You repent and you put your confidence and trust in the sacrifice that Christ made and you follow him. You walk in obedience to his commands. You choose him day after day. And if you make mistakes, thank God he is the one that makes us stand firm. Thank goodness he is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. But I may not at any moment willfully turn away and say, Lord, I'm just not going to obey you there. Because the moment I do that, I'm no longer submitted to him. And we want to just try, well, when, when do you know you've fallen away? I don't know. Just don't get anywhere near the line. I mean, why do we want to flirt with our eternity? Because there's a deceitfulness of sin. Because the enemy comes as a masquerade, as an angel of light. And he wants us to get as close to the line as we can without trying to fall off. Don't get close to the line. Because to all who believed him, verse 12, to those who accepted him, he gives the right to become children of God, you're reborn. And James now tells us, get rid of all the evil in your lives, the filth in your lives, and humbly accept the word God has planted in your heart, for it has the power to save your souls. In other words, say the amen. What's the amen? Getting rid of the filth and the evil in our lives. What's the amen? Receiving and accepting the word God has planted in our hearts. That's the amen. That's the promise fulfilled. And if we're not doing that, the promise just has potential. Just potential. We have to water the seed that's been planted in us. We have to weed. We have to work the promise until there's a harvest. The men and women like Simeon and Anna and the people in Hebrews chapter 11 that the writer tells us about. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. James says it was their faith and their actions working together. It was their belief in the promise and their amen. Their amen. It's not enough to just have belief in the promise. The promise absolutely has full potential and power to be unlocked in your life, but until the amen is spoken, it just remains potential. And that amen is our words, that amen is our thoughts, that amen is our actions. Because if we say we believe, but we don't commit our lives to him and do what he says, we deceive ourselves, is what James says thinking the promise has been applied and the promise isn't. It's the action that comes with it. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, the writer says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience, faith 
and endurance will inherit what has been promised. We speak the amen. And sometimes we speak the amen day after day after day after day after day after day after day. And Hebrews 11 tells us that these ancients that were commended for this never saw the promise. They never saw what they believed for. They never saw with their eyes what they hoped for. But they saw a greater reality. They saw a kingdom not of this world. And so they continued to say amen and they gave their lives. Their bodies were, were torn apart, sought in two, because they trusted in the superior promise. For us, the challenge is just not believing the hype about our enemy. Our enemy is very deceitful. He is very powerful. He masquerades as an angel of light. But he has indeed lost his dominion, gained from the first Adam. Because of the second Adam, Christ Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so he says, I send you. Go in that same authority and heal the sick and raise the dead. Cast out demons. Preach the good news. But far too many of us are waiting for something else first. You know, I would start sharing my faith more if, if only God would take care of this. I would start sharing my faith more if only, no, that if only will never come. You receive the promise and you start walking in the promise today. And you trust God to fulfill the promise someday. In Colossians chapter 2, it says, God made you alive with Christ when he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The enemy has been dealt with. All authority is now his, Christ. First Peter says, be alert and be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. It's like a, a lion with no teeth. All roar and no bite. But sometimes his roar hurts. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why? Because for him, it's all about intimidation and deception and fear. If he can intimidate you, if he can deceive you, if he can get you afraid, you'll become ineffective. And you won't walk in the fullness of God's promise for your life. Receive the promise of God. The last scripture that I have for you from Daniel chapter 11. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. 
This is the season of promise. And all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. Because of the work of the fully God, fully man, Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, every promise of God is yes. Every debt that the enemy would like to accuse us of has been canceled. Every weapon that he would like to use against us has been disarmed. He has given us all authority in heaven and on earth to finish his work. The question is, will you and I say the amen? Keep speaking, keep living that amen. Believe the promise and obey the word. And through faith and endurance, we will receive the promise. As we close today, this is what I want us to do. I want us to pray for what promise you are waiting for. You're here today and you need the promise of salvation for your loved ones. You need the promise of joy. You need the promise of peace. You need the promise of hope. You need the promise of healing. You need the promise of breakthrough. Whatever God has promised, you need it in your life. In just a moment, I'm going to have you stand right where you are and uh, we are going to, we're going to pray for that promise to be said. And when we get to the end of that prayer, we are going to say the amen together because that's what we do. But again, I wish it was just say it one time. It's say it over and over and it's live it. It's be obedient in the darkness. When, you, when nothing else makes sense, you just stay to the word and you do what the word says. And that's what it is. This is what Jesus came to do. We already read from Isaiah chapter 61 and Luke 4. This is what Jesus came to do, to destroy the work of the enemy, and he did it. And I shared a lot of scripture with you today because faith comes from the word. And as we pray today, I don't want your faith to be built on me. I want your faith to be built on the word. And so if you're here and you say, you know what, there's a promise I'm believing for today, whatever it is in the word, would you just stand to your feet right now? We're going to pray for you and say, we're not going to drag this out because I, there's one other thing I need to do, but I want us to, I want us to pray. You say, I need the promise of, of something, healing, forgiveness, breakthrough, whatever. As we come to the end of that prayer, I want you with me to say the amen. And so, Father, I thank you for the assurance that you have given us today. God, your word stands true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. You have seen the end from the beginning, and you have been revealing this mysterious plan. God, we stand amazed and in awe at this plan that you have done. You are a greater storyteller than any human movie or book we have ever seen. Your plan is amazing. Thank you for reminding us of these things. Jesus, thank you for making every promise a potential reality for us. 
You have made salvation and healing and victory in every way, shape, and form available to us today. We believe it. We believe your death on the cross gave back dominion to you that you have now passed on to us. That you have sent your spirit as a deposit to live inside of us, to empower us and to help us and to remind us of all of these truths. That you are continuing to reveal that mystery to us. And so, Father, we ask for these promises today. We ask for salvation for our loved ones. We ask for healing for ourselves and for our families. We ask for that breakthrough that we've longed for. God, we ask for peace in the midst of of difficult circumstances. We ask for joy where there's been sorrow. God, we ask because you have made it available and you've told us to ask. We bring it to you right now in full assurance of faith and together we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.